You're listening to Bible Truth Feed, a podcast by Christadelphianvideo.org for Christadelphians and all those seeking the truth about the Bible message. Join us now as we present our latest episode. Um, If we go to a dictionary or to Wikipedia in this case, um, when we look for a definition of doctrine, it will tell us that it's comes from a Latin word to do with teaching, doctrine. It's it's things that are taught and it's normally in a collection of doctrines that a denomination will believe. And and that's true of any religion, but particularly we're looking at Christianity in this this talk. And what you may may have heard of is a catechism. So these doctrines can collectively be put into a, a document a collection called a catechism and you may have heard of the catechism of the catholic church for example but basically a catechism is a collection of doctrines a collection of teachings that a group of people if you like sign off to agree uh, you might call it a doctrinal manual now we've used this title before i know on several occasions as a body that there's only one bible and yet there are many churches and this kind of asks the question how is it possible that if we're all worshiping the same god and we all believe in jesus why then are there so many churches and it's not just buildings we're talking here about belief systems and and denominations and somebody has let it go Um, i don't expect you to be able to see that and she might be able to see on a massive screen Um, this is somebody's drawn up what they've called a christian family tree and this is showing all the branches of Christianity. Now, it's not all of them because I can't see Christadelphians on there, for example. Um, but th- but this is showing that there are lots of different groups of Christians in the world today, and they all have differences of opinion. And the reason why they they are there is because they disagree on certain things. So there are lots of doctrinal things, some things that uh, each of those denominations would or wouldn't agree with. About ninety percent of those for example, will believe in the Trinity um, quite a lot because the Catholic Church and the bigger churches believe that. Same with the devil. Uh, Transubstantiation, where the emblems become the literal body of Christ, for example. Immaculate Conception, which is about Mary being um, immaculately formed um, and and things like that. And each of those groups disagree on things. So you'll see in the middle to the right side there, I think my master says it you've got a, a group there protestant churches and those protestant churches go against the catholic ones but they kind of have lots of disagreements so so we can see there are many denominations and therefore they have different doctrines and we might ask if they're all using the bible and they're all following god why are there so many different and the reason is because of the sources now i've just taken the catholic church i'm not picking on them Uh, I use them because, A, they're the biggest group of Christians in the world. And secondly, they do have their beliefs in a catechism. And when you go through it and look at it, if you look, you only need to see the right side of the slide, really. The the left one is the detail, but on the right hand side is this is how they build up their belief system, their doctrines. It is based on scripture. Um, They call it the Great Commission of Jesus, which is uh, in the gospel when Jesus tells the disciples to go out and preach into all the world and they call that the great commission and scripture but they also have tradition and that tradition and scripture balance is carried out by a group of people called the magisterium of the church 
So bishops, the Pope, loads of different people will have an, uh, an opinion and they will agree what to do. Now, in the tradition, some of those have been done by various councils, um, the Nicene Creed you may have heard of, lots of different things that are used to determine what they believe. So, so we, I guess it isn't surprising then that a lot of denominations who use scripture and tradition or uh, Mormons, for example, use alleged inspired um, visions by Joseph Smith. We can understand why there would be disagreement. And, and I'm putting this in here because this is quite interesting. What well, this is a statement uh, made on a Christian site, which says a Catholic site, sorry, Protestants refuse to accept the doctrines of the Catholic Church. Their insistence to clinging only to the Bible flies in the face of the very structure of the faith as established by Jesus. So the Catholic Church would say that we shouldn't just stick to the Bible. Um, and they suggest in here that Jesus made it quite clear that we could have other um, things that influence and determine doctrine. And they quote the letters of Paul. Now, as Christadelphians, we believe there is only one source and we would be amongst those Protestants, so called by the Catholic Church, because we only accept the Bible. So let's have a look and see what scripture says about doctrine. Now, I've only used a few passages here, but when he wrote his gospel, uh, sorry, the Acts of the Apostles, Luke, when writing to Theophilus in chapter one, says this, they continued steadfastly, this is disciples, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So Luke says in his gospel to Theophilus, he says that the apostles were following the doctrine. They had a doctrine that they followed and they fellowshiped on that doctrine and they broke bread in that doctrine and they made prayers. So the disciples of the first century had a doctrine that they believed in. Now, now Paul, when he wrote to Titus, said that the, the bishop or the people that ran the, the church, I'll refer to those as ecclesias, must be blameless, steward of God, not self-willed, not soon angry, not given to wine, no striker, not given to filthy lucre, but a lover of hospitality, a lover of good men, sober, just, holy, temperate, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that they may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince gain sayings. Now the word taught and the word sound doctrine are the same, different forms of the same word. So, so here, Paul saying to Titus that the people who run the church, who run the ecclesia, they need to have a certain characteristics, amongst which is that they hold fast the faithful word, having been taught so that they can do it by sound doctrine. Verse 10 says the reason for that is because there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision. So those who were Jewish should come to knowledge of uh, Christ and the discipleship, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy Lucas sake. So Paul's saying to Titus that they have to make sure that they stick to sound doctrine based on the faithful word that they have been taught, because there are those who are teaching other things that they shouldn't. So even in the first century, there were people who were not sticking to sound doctrine. 
When Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, he talked about the fact that there was sin could be forgiven by God. He says, shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? So some would suggest this is saying, actually, we don't need to stick to rules like the law. Paul says, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin or to death, or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became a servants of righteousness. And he goes on to say, so what, so what Paul is saying to the Romans is, you were servants of sin, but now, because you've got the sound form of doctrine that was given to you, by sticking to that, you can be saved. So there is a set of rules, if you like. There is a form of doctrine that we have to believe in order that we might uh, inherit the kingdom. When he wrote to Timothy, he said something similar here. Look, he says, verse 13, but continue thou the things which thou hast learned, and it's been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them. And that from a child thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And we read this, didn't we? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, so for proving things over, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be truly furnished unto all good works. So Paul's saying to Timothy that the things that he has learned, because he learned them of the disciples, he must stick to. And, and we're told here that if you want to, if you like, find the source of doctrine, it is scripture, because all scripture is inspired or breathed by God and is profitable for doctrine, first thing. Again, writing to Timothy, he says this, preach the word, verse 2. Be instant in season and to season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears, and they shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned on to fables. You see, Paul's saying to Timothy, as he did to Titus, you've there's, this, there's only one set of doctrine, if you like, it, and to make sure it's sound and you use that doctrine together with long suffering and patience to exhort one another. But again, the warning there that there will be those who would rather hear something else. And so they change it. Uh, it you know, they don't like the ending of the book, so they change the ending of the book. And Paul says to Timothy Titus, and to the Roman Ecclesia, you need to be careful. So there are other passages we could go to, but for me then that says the doctrine is really important. It is important we believe. Yes, we may be all be worshipping, quote, same God. We may all be worshipping Jesus, but we need to be worshipping him in the right way. Not after the traditions of men, but after scripture. And Paul has made it quite clear in those letters that we read of his and Luke in his um, Acts of the Apostles to Theophilus and indeed in his gospel, make it quite clear that doctrine comes from the word of God. Doctrine is given by God. 
and that we accept that doctrine and we don't add to it, we don't change it to make it suit. So that's the first part, I'm saying doctrine is important. Now the second thing is when we come to talk about doctrine to our interested friends, I don't know about you, but I sometimes find it really difficult. Um, we're going to take just a four, a few, and I'm going to begin with hell, because I think hell is quite a good example. When you're talking to someone about hell, the temptation is, and I've done it myself, done it loads of times, is to go back to the original Hebrew in the Old Testament and say, well, it was Sheol, uh, to say sometimes it's translated hell, sometimes it's a pit, sometimes it's a grave, and you go through. But it still comes with its difficulties, because then you find you go into the fires of Gehenna, not literally, of course. So what I wanted to do is to show you another way that I found of looking at hell that actually can help us. And in, if you like, throwing it back to our interested friends and, and saying the challenge really is, so what is hell like then if, it's, if we see the verses I'm going to show you? So let's, let's begin. So this is from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, and this is just one of the many paragraphs that talk about hell. So the teaching of the church affirms the existence of hell in eternity. Immediately after death, souls of those who die in a state of mortal sin descend into hell, where they suffer the punishments of hell, eternal fire. The chief punishment of hell is eternal separation from God, in whom alone man can possess the life and happiness for which he was created and for which he longs. So, hell then is ruled over by the devil. It's a death. Uh, it's fiery, it's hot, it's got punishments there, and it's eternal. Once you go there, you don't come back. You, you go there because you're a bad person, not because you're a good person. So my question is, let, let me show you why that's wrong in three easy steps, I think. And that hell isn't, as many people would say. It's interesting, Bish, um, I can't remember his name now, Pope Benedict, who's just died, he actually, in 2007, issued a paper um, really pushing that hell was a literal place of fire and eternal torment because many in the church were saying it wasn't necessarily literal. So let's look at the story of Jonah. Come with me, if you will, to Jonah chapter two. And I'll just show you my um, three challenges because three men have visited hell and interestingly, all three have come back, which means it's not, for a start, an eternal place of torment. But if you go to Jonah chapter 2, Jonah has been swallowed by the whale. But look at what he says in verse 2. This is his prayer to God. He says, I cried by reason of mine affliction unto the Lord, and he heard me. Out of the belly of hell cried I, and thou heardest my voice. For thou didst cast me into the deep of the midst of the seas, and the floods compassed me round about. Thy billows and thy waves passed over me. Then I said, I am cast out of thy sight. Will I look again toward thy holy temple? And, and he goes on in that prayer to talk about being under the water, into the depths, and tangled in the weaves, lying dead at the bottom of the ocean. So the question is, Jonah, it says, was in hell, and he cried, and he came out of it. So, if we look at the words around the, the slide here, the punishments, well, it wasn't eternal, was it? It, it, it came out, he didn't stay there forever, which is what we're told once you're in hell, you can't come out. And, and opposed to being a very hot, fiery place, 
we find it's a very damp, cold, wet place for, for Jonah. Jonah died, went to hell, but he came back again and lived again. I point out there's no mention of the devil there, but we'll, we'll talk about the devil later. So that's my first challenge is that if hell is that place of fire, then how come Jonah's hell was different? Come to Ezekiel 32. Second person going to hell. So from verse 17 of chapter 32, Ezekiel is taken to see, but uh, it goes with the Pharaoh of Egypt into hell. And look what they say. Verse 21, the strong among the mighty shall speak to him out of the midst of hell with them that help him. They are gone down. They lie uncircumcised, slain by the sword. So Ezekiel tells the Pharaoh in this prophecy, you're going to hell, just like those that have gone before you. And in this vision, we see that the multitude of nations so, son of man, wail for the multitude of Egypt, verse 18, cast them down. Verse 20, they shall fall in the midst of them that are slain by the sword. She is delivered to the sword, draw her and all her nations. So, so God is saying to Egypt through Ezekiel that they're going to fall those that are slain. So Pharaoh and the Egyptians are going to be fatally wounded and pierced. And then they're going to be thrown into hell with those that have helped them, that have gone down and that lie there too. Others, other nations, as we'll see in a moment, who have been slain, pierced by the sword and fatally wounded. And, and as you go through this chapter in verse 22, he goes round and as it were, he sees each of these graves in hell. He sees the one for Assyria and then in verse 24, the one for Elam. In verse 26, Meshach and Tubal. Verse 29, Edom. Verse 30, princes of the north of Tyre and the Zidonians. And then Pharaoh, Egypt, was the final grave. And it's interesting, when we look at them all, is that these people in hell, which we were told in several times in this chapter, hell occurs, were all armies. They were all in graves or pits. They had all been slain, they had all fallen by the sword, and they had all lived a reign of terror. But they are all dead. There's no fire here, is there? There's no people running around on fire or being eternally tormented. They're just lying in graves, dead. All their bodies laying in the grave, or in the pit, or in hell, depending which words you look at. And then Ezekiel brings Pharaoh out, having seen that picture of hell. So hell is a place of punishment, but it wasn't ruled over by the devil there. And we can see there's no fire. There's nobody being eternally tormented. They are just dead. And the third example, I think, is one of the most powerful is of Jesus. Come to Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2, 
Peter is addressing the people, talking about Jesus. And in verse 25, uh, so let's go to 23, actually 22. Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know him, being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken away and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be old enough of it. So it clearly is talking about Jesus. And he says, for David speaks concerning him. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand that I should not be moved. Therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover also my flesh shall rest in hope, because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell neither will thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. So Jesus went to hell, but the hell couldn't hold him, and so he was released from it. So hell cannot be the destination of the evil people can it because of all the people that have ever lived jesus had no sin neither was gar found in his mouth so it can't possibly be referring uh, hell can't possibly then be the destination of only evil people because jesus wasn't evil jesus couldn't stay therefore he wasn't punished there's no mention of fire or the devil so here we have then case, as I see it, of three men who have gone to hell, described hell for us, and then come back. And so my challenge to those who believe that hell is a place of fire and torment is in none of those passages of hell where people, three people who we know are describing hell, in none of those occasions is there an a punish, eternal punishment, fire, death devil ruling and i put this and, and then having established that and accepted that we can then talk to our friends about the use of words in the scriptures and i've taken this from um, the declaration of the truth uh, leaflet that we used to use years ago the original unspoilt meaning of hell was an unseen or covered place hell in the bible often means the grave uh, we have one word in the english that i'm conscious of with this hell bit and that's the word helmet and helmet is a word that means a covering of the head, which is what a helmet does. Hell is a covering. It was where the bodies were covered over and people were buried. So for me, that's making the doctrine simple. The doctrine of hell is that if hell is all those things, how come the three people we know that went to hell and came back who described it didn't describe it in that way at all? What about souls then? What are souls? Well, in terms of doctrine of a soul, what is a soul? Is th This is what the church, the Catholic system says. It says the church teaches that every spiritual soul is created immediately by God. It is not produced by the parents and also that it is immortal. It does not perish when it separates from the body at death and it will be reunited with the body at the final resurrection. Just take some key things out of there so that the soul is created immediately by God. It is separate from the body. It is spiritual, is what that's saying. 
So, so when a child is born simultaneously, God creates a soul that goes into the body, but the soul comes out at death. So we can, and we often do, go into the use of nephesh, but I want to show a simpler way maybe of proving the point of what a soul is and what a soul isn't. Now, this is the, the teaching then of quite a lot of people who believe in immortal souls, is that in life we are mortal with the soul in us, but at death that immortal soul comes out of the body, is separated, and it either goes to heaven or it goes to hell. That's the summary of the series of doctrines that we're looking at. So how can we prove otherwise? But here's an easy exercise. Here are just some references that you could look at and say, well, actually, if a soul is literally a soul, it's literally a being, let's look at that. And I've used, I've used the authorised version, but you could use other versions. And what I've done is every time the word soul occurs, I've made a note of it and had a look at what it says. And I've just picked some here because what you could do is you can actually draw a picture of a soul of what a soul is. So, for example, we find that souls have heads from those passages. We then find that they also have ears and they can hear things. They have feet. They can walk and they can stand. They have legs connected to those feet. Souls have hands, a left and a right. They have two. They have lips and a mouth. They have eyes. They have arms that connect the hands to the body. And so so we end up with this picture of, if you like, the outline of a human being. But when we read the passages carefully, it's more than that because the eye that the souls, the eyes that the soul has enable them to be able to see. The eyes enable them to, to weep and to cry. So if that's the case, then the eye can't just be if you're an outer shell of an eye, it has to have all the things in it in order to make it cry and weep, in order to make it to be able to see. It has to have the right lenses. So if you take your body and you say, well, what part of my body is my soul where your eyes are and everything that goes into it, all the nerves and everything else, because otherwise the eye won't work. So everything within the eye is needed in order for the soul to be able to see. And the same can be true of the ear because the soul doesn't just have ears to look at. We're told that souls can hear, physically hear. So the soul must also include those parts of the ear that are behind the head to make the ear work. We are told that the soul has a mouth. We are told that it has tongue. So we see verses where the tongues of the souls shall sing. So the tongue has to be able to speak. The tongue has to be able to taste. And in order to do that, you need taste buds and I was going to say song buds but you know what I mean we need the mechanism to be able to sing and to speak so souls can sing and speak and taste and see and hear and do all those things then it's not just physical look it's the stuff that goes behind it hands are to the soul hands of the soul are to carry things they are to touch things they are to feel things so for a hand to be able to work for the soul, to be able to touch and feel and etc., then it must have a structure that enables it to pick things up, to move things. And the same with the feet. For a foot to walk, it's not enough just to have the outside of the foot. You'd need the muscles and everything else. Um, there's a verse that talks about souls washing their toes and touching their toes with blood and their fingertips. 
So it's quite clear that souls have more than just the outward form of a foot. Uh, and what we're saying is we're also told that the bow, there was a battle where so many souls were killed. It's another point, souls are not immortal. And the bones of the souls were broken. So the soul must have skeleton. And I'm just going to flick through these because it must have muscles, tendons, tissues, flesh, and blood, and lungs, kidneys, stomach, and reproductive organs and tissues, etc. And the reason why we know that is because in those verses, as you read, you'll see that those souls are able to breathe, they're able to taste, they're able to feed, therefore the food must go somewhere, they're able to reproduce, they're able to die. So, so all of those things are needed. So if you said, well, what is your soul? Then actually your soul is all of you. So when you die, if you were to take everything out in a soul, there will be nothing left. The soul is the body. It's all the same thing. And that makes it quite clear. In fact, using some of those references and indeed more, we could prove that if the word soul is literally referring to a soul, in all cases, we have souls that have been born. Um, someone is described with so many souls. Um, souls breathe, they die, they're buried, and they're raised. And they're raised. So a soul can be born, can breathe, it can die, it's buried, and it can be resurrected. Souls can be cut off because of sin. Souls, therefore, can sin. Souls are described as being clean, unclean, or defiled. Souls can make atonement. Souls can be redeemed. They can be saved. They can be ransomed. So having done that, and you can do that to any greater or lesser extent. Um, I've done it with kids. I've just said to kids, can you draw me a soul? And I give them those references and they come back with drawing similar to the ones we've seen. The, the soul is all of it. So, so when people talk about an immortal soul, we can say, well, actually, we know, what about these souls that died? Why weren't they immortal? What about these souls that were born of men and women when we're told souls can only be born given by God? So we come back to that having, if you like, shown that a soul is actually the whole of the person, then we go back to this. Soul in the Bible means primarily creature, but he's also used the various aspects in which a living creature, man or beast, can be contemplated, such as person, body, life, breath, mind. It never expresses the idea of immortality. And this is what we have in the Declaration of the Truth document, so that people know what we believe and making it simple. If you look at what a soul really is and forget whatever else you think it might be, have a look at what happens to souls in the Bible. We find that in fact, they're not immortal. They are in fact the whole of the person and therefore and able to die. The soul that sinneth, it shall die, says the prophet. Okay, third one, let's look at the devil and we'll look at Satan as well. So this is what we are told is a doctrine that we should believe. Behind the disobedient choice of our first parents lurks a seductive voice opposed to God, which makes them into fall into death out of envy. Scripture and the church's tradition see in this being a fallen angel called Satan or the devil. The church teaches that Satan was at first a good angel made by God. The devil and the other demons were indeed created naturally good by God, but they became evil by their own doing. 
So this doctrine is saying that there's a fallen angel. He was God made originally, became a fallen angel, and he's known as Satan or the devil. He's a real being, a real tempter, and basically he's the one who we can blame for what we do wrong. Now, my question, or my approach rather, of keeping it simple is to actually go the way that many denominations do. And this, a lot of denominations deal with this, not just Catholics, JWs. We had some friends who were JWs and we talked to them. And it's interesting because there are lots of things you can ask a question to for which they need to answer. Often they say to us, don't they, that um, we need to prove to them, but actually they ought to be able to prove to us. For example, the fact that um, most people are surprised when you say to them that the devil isn't mentioned anywhere in the, the Old Testament. There's no mention of the word devil at all. You, you can't find it. But they will say, okay, so but we know that he exists because, so this idea that it's an angel that fell um, they have passages to prove that. And I'd like to look at those three passages because this helps us to prove that the devil isn't what they think it is. So come to Isaiah 14. It's a well-known passage. So again, I've just got three passages here to say, well, have a look and see what you think. So in Isaiah 14, we go down to verse 12. How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which didst weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thy heart, I will ascend into heaven, I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pits. Incidentally, hell and pit, the same Hebrew word, but for some reason, they're translated differently. So many will argue that this is proof that, that the, uh, the, the devil uh, was a fallen angel, fallen from heaven, and that he has been cast down to hell from where he reigns. We've already seen that hell is simply the grave or a pit. So I would suggest that this suggests that, in fact, Lucifer, whoever Lucifer is, has already been killed. But we don't need to do much because if we go back to verse four, we see the context. Now, somebody once said, and I can't remember who it was or where it comes from, that text without context is pretext. You have to look at the context to get the true understanding. And, and in this chapter 14, it's part of a whole chapter that is dedicated to God talking to Israel about what he's going to do. And in verse three it says and it shall come to pass in the day that the lord shall give thee rest from thy sorrow and from thy fear and from the hard bondage wherein thou hast made to serve that thou shalt take up this proverb against the king of babylon and say so this is israel going to go into captivity with babylon and god says when it comes to a certain point then there will be a prophecy made against the king of babylon which will say, how hath the oppressor ceased, the golden city ceased, the Lord hath broken the staff of the wicked and the scepter of the rulers. And he goes on to explain how he's going to destroy and bring down the king of Babylon. Hence in verse 12, how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, O day star? 
uh, it's referencing Venus, the only star you can see during the day. So it's not about the devil at all. This is clearly talking about the king of Babylon. And signs and symbols have been used to describe the way in which Babylon will fall and be destroyed. Come to Ezekiel 28. Um, we had some Jehovah's Witnesses friends and we showed them that passage and they went off and talked to the elders. And they came back and said, yeah, the elders agree. But have you looked at Ezekiel 28? And in Ezekiel 28, we have um, these words. So if we go in at verse... Verse 13, thou hast been in the Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, the topaz, diamond, beryl, onyx, jasper, sapphire, emerald, carbuncle, gold. The workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes were prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so thou wast upon the holy mountain of God. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect in thy ways from the day when thou wast created till iniquity was found in thee. And so the passage goes on. And so um, many people will quote this as the second proof of the devil's existence, being a literal devil. And they will say that here he is walking in the Garden of Eden. He will take on the form of a serpent, they will say. And they will say that he was anointed cherub. He was by God. He was, made, he was created perfect, it says in verse 15. But then he fell with the iniquity and became the devil. But again, we need to consider the context because if we go back to verse 11, it says, moreover, the word of the Lord came unto me saying, son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre and say unto him, thus the Lord. So this passage isn't talking about a fallen angel at all. It's talking about the king of Tyre. And it's a prophecy about him with all his riches and all that he's got. And it's going to be taken away from him and he's going to be destroyed. But again, we don't need to know the detail. We simply know this is a prophecy. But verse 12 makes it quite clear that this isn't talking about an angel. It's talking about the king of Tyre. And then the third and final passage is in the book of Revelation and at chapter 12. And this passage is one, again, that's often quoted. Um, as proof of the devil's existence. Verse 7 of Revelation 12 says there was a war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought and his angels and prevailed not. Neither was their place found any more in heaven. And the dra great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out onto the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a voice saying in heaven, now is come salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ and the and the for the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accursed them before our God day and night. So this passage is quoted to say that this is when the angels were in heaven and there was a war between two sets, the set that Satan had uh, were cast out and therefore occupy hell. Now, just as the book of Isaiah was sign and symbol and doing a prophecy for the king of Babylon, and just as Ezekiel was showing sign and symbol what would happen to the king of Tyre, 
in type, come back to Revelation chapter one, because I'm going to suggest that's exactly the same here. Revelation chapter one says the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave unto him to show unto his servants things that must shortly come to pass. And he sent and signified it or signified it, made signs by his angel unto his servant, John. So revelation isn't literal. It's a book of sign and symbol. Now, also notice the verse one says the reason why John is giving this revelation is that the servants must know the things which must shortly come to pass. So as we go through chapters one, two and three of Revelation, there are a series of prophecies and predictions like the ones that um, Ezekiel and Isaiah had against the churches or the ecclesias of the first century. And then we come to chapter four. After this, I looked and said, behold, a door was opened in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was as it were of a trumpet talking with me, which said, come up hither and I will show thee the things which must be hereafter. So chapters one, two and three we read were things, pictures, symbols, signs of things that were going to happen in the near future. Chapter four, verse one says that when those things have been fulfilled, so after the seven churches or ecclesias of the first century are gone, which is what the letters are talking about, after that, then these are the things that are going to happen. So whatever Revelation chapter 12 means, and I'm not going to make any attempt at this moment to uh, explain it, whatever Revelation 12 means, the fact is that it didn't happen until after the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, so it can't be referring to war in heaven at creation or war in heaven early on. Whatever the war in heaven is, whatever the battles between angels is, it is not the devil, Satan. Yes, the words are used there, but clearly it's not uh, a literal being. Come to Hebrews 2. Those who believe the devil is literal will say that every time Satan and devil occurs, it's literal. It's not um, a term for anything else. It's a literal devil. And so keeping it simple, we have, okay, so let's look at where people find the origin of devil. Isaiah 14 is talking about King of Babylon. Uh, Ezekiel's talking about the King of Tyre. And Revelation is talking about some event that happened way after the death and resurrection of Jesus. But even if the devil was literal, if we're coming to chapter two of Hebrews and verse 13. So verse 14, for as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he, Jesus, also himself likewise took part of the same. So Jesus was flesh and blood. That through death he might destroy him that had power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. So the writer to the Hebrews is saying quite clearly that Jesus died in order to destroy the devil. So if the devil is literal, then Jesus has destroyed the devil. Now, it, it is hard to 
argue against, I think, these passages. However, I do know that the New World Translation uh, has reworded that in such a way that it fits more in keeping with uh, what Jehovah's Witnesses prefer to believe. But we have to be very careful because Scripture does not say that. Scripture says that he, he went through death to destroy the devil. Now, Satan, I'll deal with as well. Now, with Satan, all I'm going to do is to say, well, actually, there are two examples in Scripture of Satan that I think demonstrate what they really are. So if we go to Numbers 22, Numbers 22, and we go in at verse 22. So verse 21, Balaam rose up in the morning and saddled his ass and went with the princes of Moab. So Balaam is about to do something that God has told him not to do. And God's anger was kindled because he went and the angel of the Lord stood in the way for an adversary against him. Now he was riding upon his ass and his two servants were with him. And the ass saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way and his sword drawn in his hand. And the ass turned aside out of the way and went into the field. And Balaam smote the ass to turn her into the way. But the angel of the Lord stood in the path of the vineyards, a wall being on this side and a wall on that side. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she thrust herself onto the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall, and he smote her again. And the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right hand or to the left. And when the ass saw the angel of the Lord, she lay down under Balaam, and Balaam's ass was kindled, and he smote the ass with a staff. And the Lord opened the mouth of the ass, and she said unto Balaam, What have I done unto thee that thou hast smitten me these three times? And Balaam said, Because thou hast mocked me. We go down to verse 32. And the angel of the Lord said unto him, Wherefore hast thou smitten thine ass these three times? Behold, I went out to withstand thee, because thy way is perverse before me, before God. Now you may say, Well, Satan's not there, but Satan is. Because in verse 22 when the angel stands in the way for an adversary it's the same word satan that's translated everywhere else as satan or transliterated but on some occasions it's translated adversary and this is one and there's no reason why they would there's no reason this is any different to any other passage and again in verse 32 where it says they're able to withstand thee the revised version says for an adversary it's the same word satan so here's a brilliant picture of what Satan means. Satan is about somebody or something becoming an adversary or, if you like, standing in the way. So in this case, um, the angel was being a Satan, but actually being a good one because he was stopping Balaam from doing something wrong that God didn't want him to do. And so in our mind's eye, we've got a picture that Balaam wants to go forward. The angel is a Satan, stands in his way and stops Balaam going forward. And that's what an adversary is. It's somebody that stands in the way and stops us doing what we want to do. Come to the Gospel of Matthew. There are lots of references that we could go to, but we're trying to keep it simple. Is that actually, if you look at the word adversary, you'll see there's lots of occasions when it occurs. But come to Matthew chapter 16 for an example in the New Testament. And we go into verse 13, Jesus 
is on the coast of Caesarea, Philippi. He asked his uh, disciples, saying, Whom do men say I am? And you remember how in verse 16, Simon Peter said, Thou art the Christ, or Messiah, the Son of the living God, Son of the living God. And Jesus said, Yes, blessed art thou. Verse 21, from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders, chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised the third day. So here we've got a picture that Jesus and the disciples are going towards Jerusalem. And Jesus says to the disciples, who included Peter, he says that we're going to go this way, but actually I'm going to be killed. I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer the hands of the elders and peter in verse 22 takes jesus and began to rebuke him saying be it far from thee lord this shall not be unto thee but he turned jesus turned and said unto peter get thee behind me satan for thou art an offense unto me for thou savest not the things of god but those that be of men now more modern translations have that as a stumbling block but you see the parallel so Jesus is walking to Jerusalem with his disciples and he tells them that he's going to suffer a lot of things at the hand of the elders. He's going to die. And Peter's standing in the way and says, no, 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 that's not going to happen. Jesus, I will stay with you. It's not going to happen. And Peter, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me. Move around. Come away from blocking my path, if you like, being a Satan or an adversary to me. And I would suggest that every occasion where the word Satan occurs, or when it's translated adversary or translated Satan, it refers to an individual or a group of individuals who are preventing someone from going forward. In this case, preventing Jesus from going to his death. In the case we saw earlier, Balaam going to preach wrongly. So rather than being a fallen angel, we would say that the devil is not a supernatural person, but a personification of sin in its various manifestations individual social and political so satan can be a power um, it can be a government um, it can be a group of people like the pharisees or the sadducees or the people who refused to allow them to rebuild the walls in jerusalem in the days of Ezra and nehemiah or it can be an individual who is acting as a satan whether it be peter or an angel and satan well satan is simply means an adversary it's used of human beings uh, in the case we saw as well, it can be, can be an angel. It's something or someone who stands in the way and stops us from going forward. Finally, the Trinity. And on this one, I'm just going to use this. So on the Trinity, people say uh, this is what is believed is the Trinity is one. We do not confess three gods, but one God in three persons, the co-substantial trinity. The divine persons do not share the one divinity among themselves, but each of them is God whole and entire. The Father is that which the Son is, the Son that which the Father is, the Father and the Son that which the Holy Spirit is, i.e. by nature one God. So it's three in one. It's God the Holy Spirit, God the Holy Ghost, God the Father, God the Son, and they're co-substantial. And that's portrayed in a lot of artwork. So keeping it easy again on this one, all I would say is, well, actually, you search the Bible from cover to cover and you won't find any reference to the Trinity or, or three in one or God, the Holy Spirit or God, the Holy Ghost or God, the Father or God, the Son. You won't find 
those expressions there. Come to Luke chapter one, because in Luke, uh, and again, this doctor made easy because this one is a passage that many will recognize because it's to do with the birth of Jesus. But from verse 28, we have here the process of Jesus being made, if you like. Virgin is chosen, verse 27. She's highly favored. Verse 30, fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. Behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, and thou shalt bring forth a son, and shalt call his name Jesus. He shall be great. And so Jesus was to be born. So the Holy Spirit is God's power, would cause Jesus to be born. And Timothy says, uh, we won't turn to it, there is one mediator between God and man. God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. And I guess it kind of hurts, doesn't it, to think that if God is Jesus and Jesus is God, then the atonement, the crucifixion, means nothing. Because if God was Jesus and Jesus died, then God wasn't immortal. If God is Jesus and didn't die because God cannot die, then it's a hoax, isn't it? It's pointless. Either Jesus did die or he didn't die. And if he didn't die, then um, and there's no resurrection, then we find that, as Paul says, it's a complete uh, mockery. The Bible reveals God to be the creator. He's, he is unity. He is one. Jesus is the only begotten son of God. He was born of the Virgin Mary. Spirit of God is his power by which he contains and constrains his will. And my final one, which is a, a good way to end, I think, is come with me to Matthew chapter six. Is the kingdom of God is whether it's in our hearts or it's in our, where is the kingdom of God? And again, we could spend time on this, but my challenge back would be, well, it's here in the Lord's Prayer. Matthew 6, verse 9, After this manner, therefore pray ye, our Father which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So, I hope that's helped. I'm not sure if it was possibly a bit too much. But what I've tried to do is to say, instead of going down into the detail of quoting um, the use of Greek and Hebrew words or going through a load of passages, there are some quick, easy challenges that we can give to them to actually make them think or to make any of us think about what we truly believe. There were three men who went to hell and not one of them saw a flame. We had the example of the Satan being not a supernatural devil, but being someone who stood in the way and tried to change something that God didn't want to happen. We see that God is one and that the sacrifice that Jesus made is glorious. And we're told, aren't we, that at the end, Jesus will hand over everything back to the Father. Therefore, they can't be the same person. We saw that hell was simply the place for the dead where people no more have no more memory. They're just dead in the grave and we've ended with perhaps the best piece of doctrine which is that very soon Jesus will come back to establish God's kingdom on earth and may be that each of us might find a place in that kingdom. Thank you.